Earlier this week, at an event at JW3 in North London that was put on in collaboration with Stand With Us, I interviewed Dan Sinor and Javiv Retig Gur. Dan Sinor, a former Pentagon and White House advisor, is the author of Start Up Nation, a New York Times bestseller, and his new book, which is out now, is called The Genius of Israel. Javiv Retig Gur is the Times of Israel political correspondent and a regular guest on Dan's excellent podcast, which is called Call Me Back. Download it if you haven't already. This episode of the Israel War Briefing podcast is a recording of our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everybody. Thank you all for coming out this evening to spend some time with us. I've got to say, I was, I was saying earlier, actually, in the, in the green room, that for me personally, this is a very weird experience because I listen to these guys on their podcast at least, well, at least once a week, you guys, and then you have a second one. So twice a week, uh, and now I'm, I feel like I'm in the podcast. It's like some strange, strange dream with an audience. Just got to check that I'm still wearing my trousers and it's not some <laughs> weird dream. Um, so anyway, so thank you all for coming. It's a great privilege to be joined by uh, Dan and uh, Javiv this evening. Um, it's a dream of mine, really, to, to hear them talk and be able to ask questions as we go. So it's fantastic. And you can ask questions as well at the end. I'll leave about 20 minutes or so and you can ask any questions that, that come up as we go. Uh, and afterwards, of course, Dan's going to be signing his brilliant book, The Genius of Israel, which I can heartily recommend. It's absolutely fantastic uh, and very inspiring read, uh, particularly uh, in, in these dark days. So on that note, Dan, if I can start yeah. with you. Congratulations on, on the book. Thank you. So this book, it was written at a strange moment. It, it came out just, what was the pub date for it? November 7th. November the 7th, okay. Now That's keep in mind, we had to submit it. I mean, when, when we were supposed to submit it, when we actually submitted it, are two different dates. But let's, we, we submitted it late summer, so at a, at a, right. a much different time. So of, that's really strange, because my book came out on September the 7th. Ah. That's really weird, isn't it? And you're on yeah. November the 7th. Yeah. Okay, but we're talking about... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would have rather your pub date, but anyways. Right. Well, I mean, I, I mean the, the fascinating thing about your book, I mean, it, it makes the, the, the argument, to begin with, that Israel is a miracle. It's the fourth happiest country in the world, behind three Scandinavian countries. Um, it's got a, a, a very young country. It's a thriving democracy, defying the laws of gravity in the Middle East. Um, and you seek to explain that that's all due to a basic sort of uh, communal solidarity. How did that analysis survive contact with October the 7th and what yeah. happened next? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you, uh, Jacob, and thank you for the Jewish Chronicle and uh, Stand With Israel and uh, the JW3 for hosting me. And just thank you all for being here. I, I think Haviv and I both feel like always, but especially October 7th, to see people getting together like this in communal settings to talk about Israel is always refreshing and inspiring, so thank you um, all for being here. The, um, the timing of the book was a source of tension uh, between Saul Singer, who's my co-author, uh, between Saul and, and I and our publisher, basically through much of 2023. Uh, there were multiple times uh, throughout the year that our publisher would sit down with us and propose other publication dates, not obviously anticipating October uh, 7th. The first time uh, the publisher sat down with me, it was in Midtown Manhattan, said, listen, are you sure you want a, the book to come out in November? Uh, it's coming out 
in very close proximity to another book that will be incredible competition for the genius of Israel. Coming out right around the same time. So I was like, all right, bring it on. What is it? I can handle it. Britney Spears' memoir is coming out. This is, this is true. This is true. That's Brit not true. No, it's true. That's true. If both things are true. A, go back. Look at the pub date. Britney Spears' book was coming out right around ours. And, uh, and Dan, so I... Danny was right. They, she outsold you. She did. She did. <laughs> so, so I was like, listen, I think it's a different demographic. We're going after different book buyers, uh, so I think we'll be okay. They said, fine. Then, like, a couple months later, they sit down with me again. They say, okay, we're, we're fine with you on Britney Spears, but we have a new problem. On your exact pub date, on November 7th, we've just discovered that Barbara Streisand is releasing her memoir. And, and then they're like, see, not exactly a different demographic, right? You know? uh, and uh, I say, I still think, it's, I, I think we'll be okay. And then later on, they said the point you're making, which is, are you really sure you guys want to come out with a book about the resilience and health in solidarity of Israeli society when the country is tearing itself apart. You guys will look delusional. And, uh, and you mean the, the, over the judicial reforms? Over the debate over the judicial reform. 20, we, we, we now think of 2023 as defined solely as October 7th. We forget that between January of 2023 and October 6th of 2023, it was a, a, a year of, or eight or nine months of incredible division and divide uh, and it was toxic, and people were literally saying the country was tearing itself apart, and our publisher was worried that you guys are going to look totally out of touch to the point that on the date of the reasonableness clause vote in the Knesset in the summer of 2023, when that was like the peak, you had that massive march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to the... Yeah. We, I woke up early that morning, like 5 a.m., and I was like, we got to scrap. I, told, I remember saying to my wife, which she didn't appreciate me telling her at 5 a.m., got, we got to scrap the author's note of this book. We got to do a new author's note because we've got to hit the judicial reform issue. So if you know, go and look now, we, we take on the judicial reform issue in the author's note right up front. And we thought that we had to, ex and we still thought it was important for the book to come out. This is all obviously thinking in a, in a pre-October 7th world. A, because we believed that Israel had been there before. Israel had, and we chronicle in the book whether in terms it's of the division, social divisions, divisions, 1950s, the debate over whether or not Israel should accept reparations from West Germany. Country was torn apart. Menachem Begin, who at the time was the leader of the opposition, called for the violent overthrow of the government. He 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 lit up a protest that stormed, tried to storm the Knesset. I mean, they they tried to disrupt the uh, the proceedings in the Knesset. Uh, obviously, the the country's deep division during the first Lebanon War, where you had soldiers coming back from fighting taking off their uniforms, joining these massive protests, proportionate to the size of the population at the time. These protests were much bigger than anything we saw in 2023 during the height of judicial reform. One pro-government protest movement killed a pro an anti-government protester. Right. Then you had, uh, obviously, the disengagement from Gaza. The country was deeply divided. And then the, the worst of it was the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, where for a period it was though half the country blamed the other half for creating the political climate that allowed that to happen. So we wanted to remind Israelis that, and Saul, my co-author, lives in Jerusalem, um, that Israel's been there before. And just when you think it's about to go off the rails, the country actually has guardrails, societal guardrails. And then that, October the 7th came in the middle of that. Exactly. And, and then October... the rules of the game again. And, and this has counterintuitively made our point in ways we could have never imagined. Because what you saw from October 6th, if you looked at Israel on October 6th 
and you looked at Israel on October 8th, it was like, it was in a sense two different worlds. But the October 8th world that, that we watched was, was the resilience of a country we were writing about. And I mentioned to you this just now when we were talking backstage, uh, when the New York Times reviewed the book, and I was not, we were not expecting a, a, a flattering review from the New York Times, but the fact that it was like, gave us a little bit of respect was considered a huge win, a huge win for the Jews. Uh, they, uh, but the writer, Ethan Bronner, wrote, he said, look, I'm not sure Israel can bounce back from 2023, looking at how divided the country was over judicial reform and then this enormous setback with the war. He, he wrote, but if Israel does bounce back, this book will have explained how Israel did it. Because we explain in the book why it is a healthy society. And, and again, I, I said we wanted to remind Israelis why that, that they had been there before. We also wanted Americans. It was almost like a playbook for the West. Because if you look at all the social trends in American society, and, and I think a lot of it applies to the UK, uh, in, you know, deaths of despair, staggering levels, people dying from alcohol, substance abuse, opioids, suicide, plateauing uh, life expectancy, crashing birth rates. So we're, the world is experiencing a demographic crisis. It's particularly bad in some parts of the world, like in Japan, um, where we have one stat in the book uh, that always blows my mind, that the, the market for adult diapers in Japan is now larger than the market for baby diapers. Right. Now, we can all laugh, but many countries in Europe aren't that far behind. Right. And most countries in the West, including the United States, are either hovering around or below the replacement rate, so the rate you need to be above to continue growing. So most countries in the affluent democratic world are aging and shrinking, which we've never experienced. But Israel is... Israel is the opposite. So no deaths of despair in Israel. Uh, life expectancy is higher than certainly everywhere in the Middle East and Europe and the United States. There is, not only is there no demographic crisis, Israel's way above, Israel's the only wealthy democracy that is way above replacement rate right now. Israelis are having lots of children. And by replacement, you mean uh, two point, the, yeah, the population's growing. The population's yeah. growing, exactly. You've got to be above basically 2.1 children per uh, woman in order to keep your population growing. Israel's population is young and growing. There's an iron law of demography that as countries become wealthier or as countries become more economically productive, they become less reproductive. There's only one country in the world in our time that has broken that iron law of demography, which is Israel. Israel's gotten very wealthy over the last couple decades, and it's growing. It's population growing. There's no loneliness crisis in Israel. There's a serious loneliness crisis here. I mean, I can go metric after metric after metric. Israel is a fundamentally healthy society. So part of our story wound up being to reassure Israelis. But the real impulse for the book was at a time when all these authors, you know, from George Packer to Ezra Klein to Ross yeah. Douthat, people on the left, people on the right, in the United States are writing about how the United States and the West are on this social doom loop. We were pointing out, well, here's a country that's actually, not only is it doing a little better than all these other countries, it's going the opposite direction. What can you learn from Israel's experience? Right. So before we get into that, I want to bring in Chaviv. Does Israel feel like this vibrant, healthy place from the inside? as well as how it seems from the outside. <laughs> That's quite a pause. <laughs> um, in the narrow confines of that question, just on the question of do you feel that level of social capital in Israel, you've never felt it more. 
by an order of magnitude. Now that it matters, it's there. It's something that disappears when we convince ourselves it doesn't matter. And then uh, we have enemies that constantly convince us that it, that it does. It's, it feels a little bit like, um, everything you said, Dan, feels a little bit like um, in the, before the 67 war, Israelis were convinced that, um, that they would not survive the war. They dug mass graves in Tel Aviv. There were real, the conversation in the Israeli press was a very doom and gloom conversation. But there were military analysts in the, uh, in the general staff of the IDF who told the prime minister at the time, Elevi Eshkol, you have the finest Jewish army since King David. <laughs> then Levi Eshkol, of course, had this Yiddish sense of humor, so he said, I'm not sure that's a much of an army. It was the finest. But nevertheless, um, that actually this army was a radically different um, and a radically improved fighting force and actually could defeat the armies around us. And so there, there, there were people... If, if you had read their reports the week before 67, you would have understood what was about to happen in a way that you would not have from reading the general discourse, the general press, even among Israelis. And that's how that book felt to me when I read it. Um, it just, you want to know why we, I mean, it, it, it really gets very personal. On my street, in my family, People are taking care of each other in ways that are, you know, astonishing and automatic, and not 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 even assumed. And that is, throughout Israeli society, incidentally, not limited to Israelis like me. That is emphatically in the ultra-orthodox community. That is emphatically in the Arab community. That is emphatically among the Druze. Everybody is helping everybody. Can you give me some examples that you've encountered, just in your daily life, of people pulling together that you've seen and experienced? Um, raise your hand if you heard our podcast. Okay, so I gotta have new stories. Um, <laughs> it's all right. The old stories. Um, By the way, I wish you did that when we record the podcast, because you you can repeat yourself sometimes. Really? You know, yeah, you should say, Dan, remind. Tell me if you've heard. I've done this one. Track seven. All right. My wife says I've been repeating myself for fifteen years. Yeah. Um, my we went on a, a weekend to um, a Druze town up north. Um, there's one family in that town, family in the Arabic language sense, um, Hamula, clan, of about 7,000 people. Of the 7,000 members of that family, 1,000 are in the war. And the, there are Druze flags, the colorful flags, all over the town, and Israeli flags at every corner, in every shop window. And because so many of the men of the town are at the war, the economy of the town is collapsing. And so Israelis, Jews, from everywhere else in the country, are visiting every little bed and breakfast that anybody happens to want to open in the town. Um, and, and you meet them, and you meet the Druze community, the people there, they're chatting, they're talking to you. Um, they, there's a hospitality culture among the Druze that I find very annoying, because you show up to the bed and breakfast, and they have to talk to you about it, and they have to sit with you in the bedroom that you rented from them so that they would leave you alone. But nevertheless, uh, it, it is an experience, of, um, it's an experience of togetherness and shared fate that, again, the, the, what's powerful about it is that it's assumed. There are two kinds of, there are two kinds of deep relationships. I don't, I don't think Americans don't have a deep relationship with their society, but you can be married to somebody, 
which is a fundamental relationship in your life. It shapes your life. But it's still a choice. And then you can be the child of somebody. Where even if you don't like that person, it's not a choice. Sometimes the most important things in our lives are things that are automatic, that are organic, that are not things that we choose. I often think of Western identities, maybe because my example is American. America is a very radically individualistic society. I don't, I don't know how it works in Britain. But um, I think of them as married to their polity, to their society, to their nation. And Israelis are the children of. That's something, by the way, very Middle Eastern about us, a little bit tribal in an absolutely beautiful and astonishing and wonderful sense. But you feel that difference. You feel that belonging at a scale that, uh, that's hard to, hard to express. I mean, I can tell a hundred more stories about uh, our neighbor who, who took in uh, my sister-in-law when she was eight months pregnant and just gave her a home for six weeks. And then the baby came. And so she found a new person who actually gave her, she lives in an apartment. And her husband has been at the war for a hundred days. He actually went in with the first paratrooper battalion on October 7th itself. Um, and he hasn't come out yet, except for every three weeks or so for three days. So everyone is going through it. Everyone is helping everybody. I have made so much soup for so many neighbors. About a third of the fathers on my street are in the war. And I aged out of the war about four years ago, and I felt very guilty about it ever since. So, you know, every, we're, all, we're all in it together in a very profound way. So in a way, the answer to the question is, yes, it does feel healthy from the The answer inside. is yes. Since October the 7th, yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I, Jonathan, the late Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Sachs, who we, we quote in the book, interviewed Paul Johnson, the historian, right. who had written, British historian, who had written all these biographies of different, the histories of different peoples. And he did a history of the, of the Jewish people. And Sachs asks Johnson, you've done the histories of all these people, what's the most distinctive about the Jewish people? And he pauses and he says, and he thinks about it, and he says, almost every society in the world is either highly individualistic or highly collectivist. So Haviv, obviously just referenced the United States, highly, highly individualistic. He said, but you rarely find a real hybrid, a real blend. And obviously most of the societies in the East are more communal and collectivist, and most societies in the West are much more individualistic. He says, the Jewish people are the only people who I've ever seen able to construct a society that is communal at its core, but still puts a premium on individual, the pursuit of individual excellence. It's not that people in Israel are not individu as individuals ambitious. You wouldn't have startup nation. You wouldn't have the tech scene without that. Mm -hmm. But the point is, when those tech entrepreneurs build companies, they're not just doing it because they want to get fabulously wealthy, although they would like that too. They are also doing it because there's a sense that they're putting Israel on the map. There's right. a communal, and there's national a great pride. Example in your in your book of the Bereshit spacecraft, that was a private company yeah. that nonetheless non called the imagination of the of the nation and became like an, an Israeli expression of self of assertiveness. Yeah. But actually, it was a private thing in a way that Virgin Galactic isn't for Britons, for example. Exactly. SpaceX for Americans. And the other thing that's interesting to me about that story, what what non-Jews in the West find, in the US particularly, find most striking about the, that story, the, the, the Bereshit story, the space, space IL, is what they, they always ask about, they're like, 
can anybody in Israel really get to anybody? That's what, the, well, that's what stands out, that any, these three kids basically decide they're going to start a, a space company, and they get the head of the space agency on the phone, and they get the, you know, the CEOs of the biggest companies, and they get private equity billionaires, that, you know, and, and everyone is one WhatsApp message away right. from, and, and the people can't believe that there's not like a quote-unquote caste system, not literally, you know, but like in, in the U.S., there's like a caste, there's the Silicon Valley caste system, there's the New York caste system, there's the elites of Wall Street, there, there's, a, there's a hierarchy. And in Israel, there isn't that much of a hierarchy, I mean, it's a little bit, but, it's, but anybody can get to anyone. And, um, and I think, re oddly for me, it was a surprise, that's what breaks out for people who aren't familiar with Israel, that these three kids overnight build the space program and they access everybody. Right, and they raise $50,000 yeah. to begin with to end. Just to the get the registration thing right, in. Yeah. Right, right, But let's talk about, um, about politics. Let's bring this a bit down from Thanks the... Thanks uh, for that. <laughs> yeah. um, Very Jewish event. Let's, you know, are. you guys are too upbeat. You know, let's... let's. <laughs> because I was listening to, your, to the latest episode of your podcast today on the way here, and you talk about politics, and it's a, it's a, quite a, it's a difficult episode. It's a fractious episode. And it occurred to me that, um, that you know, it, your book describes so beautifully how coherent and impressive and efficient and miraculous Israeli society is. Um, but it feels like on the political side of the society, it has a little bit more of a dysfunctional part, at least in, the, in recent years. Can you talk a little bit, let me Khabib, start with you, about where that comes from, why that is, and, and what's going on? Why can't Israel be brilliant politically as well as brilliant in every other way? We've got to give other countries something <laughs> to shine at. Um, Israeli political dysfunction has um, deep roots and deep causes, some of them shared by other countries. Um, I don't know if you know, uh, you keep cycling through prime ministers. Um, uh, you might want to look into that. Um, How many since 2015? Six? We're talking about Israel here. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, but Israel has a, um, Israel society is a very fractured society. One of the interesting questions that we never ask ourselves, and because we don't ask them, we assume it's not a question, is where the heck does Israeli democracy even come from in the first place? It's not an obvious uh, question. It's not, there's no obvious answer. You know that we're not American Jews with slightly darker tans, right? We're, we don't come from, where do Israelis come from? Where do Israeli Jews come from? They come from Tsarist Russia. They come from uh, you know, places in Eastern Europe that were not democratic. Jews rarely leave democracies. <coughs> They come from the Yemen and, and, and Egypt and, and Syria and Iraq and Morocco. Israeli Jews had never experienced democracy. The vast, vast, vast majority, 95% of them, had never experienced democracy until the first time they ever voted, which was as Israelis. So how come we're democratic from the beginning? We never sat down and wrote a constitution. If you go through the founding thinkers of Israel, you get these little compendiums of Zionist thinkers. and Jew None of them talked about democracy. You're not going to find in Hess, you're not going to, everybody points to the two paragraphs in Jabotinsky where he kind of likes American democracy. Great. But where's the Philadelphia Convention? Where's the 800 years of, of constitutional development from the Magna Carta? Where's any, where, you know, the German constitution, uh, uh, continental tradition? Any origin to Israeli democracy, intellectual origin, it just doesn't exist. We were a bunch of non-democratic people who had never experienced democracy, who arrived as penniless refugees, and boom, instantly, automatically, it's obvious to everybody, obviously we're a democracy. 
And you've had all kinds of weird Jewish explanations. You know how Jews explain to themselves things sometimes? So like there are these rabbis who say, well, you know, uh, the rabbinic tradition is very democratic because the Talmud includes all the positions in an argument. Okay, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe. Maybe Jews cannot not be Democrats culturally, maybe, probably not. I think that the origins of Israeli democracy are rooted in fractured, a fractured society, in a society that is profoundly divided into tribes, tribes that don't live together, tribes that don't learn together, our kids learn in different school systems. And because we're these fractured tribes, none of the tribes ever have been a, a majority. And so Israeli democracy at its heart is a kind of tenuous um, standoff between these fractured tribes. And you know how we vote, right? We have a proportional representation national party list system. What does that mean? That means that you don't vote for your member of parliament. You vote for a party list. So the members of parliament themselves aren't actually answerable to the voters. They're usually answerable to their party leader, which is a source of tremendous yeah. dysfunction in our system. But why do Israelis think that an election, a good, the best way to run elections is to vote by these national party lists? Why do we not have constituencies? And the simple answer is because when Israelis go to vote, they vote that tribe, that cultural, that religious, that ethnic, that political tribe. That is the source of our democracy. And it's, by the way, I'm sorry to, you know to stop me when this gets I to I know, okay. but he's moderating. Well, he's moderating. I'm moderating. I didn't want to interrupt. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to do something very Israeli, which is to tell the British about Britain. Um, <laughs> Francis Fukuyama, um, has this wonderful little bit in The Origins of Political Order where he talks about the Magna Carta and he says, nothing about the Magna Carta makes sense. Why, wh what in the Magna Carta create, start even before, you guys know that you are a liberal democracy pretending to be a theocratic dictatorship, right? <laughs> we in the Middle East have a lot of dictatorships that pretend to be democracies and have fake elections, but you actually have real elections and then pretend that you have a dictator. <laughs> okay? And it's literally the theater of government. I mean, there's literally the king's speech every year. And the, the prime minister, is, is the prime minister stand in the back still? Is that still happening? I haven't seen it recently. But uh, you, you have this, what, why do liberal democratic Brits love their monarchy? Even not so loved anymore, I don't know. But why do they have a monarchy and still think that? And Fukuyama's answer is, when you go back to 1215 to the Magna Carta, what's actually happening at the Magna Carta is a moment of standoff, of profound standoff. The king is simply the lord of London. And because the king is the lord of London, the king is always wealthy and has a larger population from which to draft an army. But when the other nobility, which is very localized, unlike the French nobility, the English nobility in the, 12th, in the 13th century are very localized. They actually speak the local dialect and things like that. They can always call on the loyalty of their subjects where they live. And if they unite, they can face down the king in London, who is the lord in London. There are deep social realities to this standoff at the Magna Carta. And says Fukuyama, why didn't they cut off King John's head? They defeated him in battle. Why did they make him sign a document? Why did they begin to build out rights and a relationship between nobility and parliament? And he says, because what would have happened if you'd actually cut off the king's head? London would still have been London. And so it would still have had a lord, and that lord would have been a king, a new king. Right? You would not have solved the fundamental problem. Democracy begins as we know democracy today, which is you guys. Democracy begins in a social standoff between two political forces that is literally at sword point at the beginning, 
and nobody knows how to win, and therefore they begin over 800 years to build institutions between inside this standoff. And in Israel? And that's Israeli democracy. <laughs> Israeli democracy is primordial. Israeli democracy is a democracy of a bunch of different tribes who had never experienced democracy show up in a place where they have to live together because they're all refugees, massively threatened from the outside. They must work together. They're deeply different from each other, don't like and don't trust each other. And so there's this standoff. There's the centrifugal forces and the centripetal forces pulling us apart, pushing us together. And we slowly build out these, these, these institutions that are common law institutions, essentially. Our democracy works because we kind of agree on how it works. And so it's, also, it's in one sense surprisingly resilient, surprisingly strong. In another sense, it's kind of weird that it still exists. It's kind right. of weird that Israeli democracy has survived to this day. And funny enough, and in your yeah. book you talk about this and about the tension between the Riven Ribbon's four tribes and why having that tension actually works because everybody has enough of a win to, to be okay but not, enough, but not too much of a win to dominate the other the other groups. Um, yeah, I, so, so that is true, that no one actually ever wins. Right. <laughs> so the Haredim are always fighting for more, but they never get everything they want. The se secular Israel is always, you know, thinking that the Haredim are maximalists, so they, they can just keep them at bay. You know, they're sort of winning, but not winning enough. And so we, we, we can go through uh, each of these communities, but they're all sort of you know, just shy of winning in their minds. And if they can only just do a little more, and that creates this tension. Uh, I, would, I would say the other thing, though, uh, the country has created national institutions at formative years of Israelis' lives that for most of them, albeit not all of them, but for most of them, no matter where they come from. So Haviv just described all these. You can be a Yemenite Jew and a Jew from Russia, and then you can be an immigrant to Israel from the United States, all walks of life. Take national military service, right? So you, one of the most moving things I see every Friday uh, afternoon, so it's now Shabbat in Israel, you see people starting to post on Instagram the scenes from Israelis fighting in Gaza celebrating Shabbat. So in the hull of a tank, you will see a clearly a very traditional Jew, probably the, the child of a you know, religious, national religious family, sitting next to someone who looks very, shall we say, not religious, you know, earring, tattooed, whatever, very secular. You see people who are, come from affluent families, sons of very successful tech entrepreneurs, and people who come from, you know, the struggling towns in the periphery. Um, you see people from all walks of life in that hull of a tank, and they're singing Shalom Aleichem together. And they're doing the Kiddush together. And I think what the military, in Star of Nation, we wrote about how the military um, gave these young Israelis this, these extraordinary skills at a young age, leadership skills, management skills, learning how to improvise, skills that 18, 19, 20 are much better skills than they will get at the best universities anywhere in the Western world. And then it's not surprising that many of them leave their army units and they go build these companies or they go join these companies. What we missed in Startup Nation, which we read about in this book, is yes, it does all those things, the army, but it also makes it harder and harder for Israelis to see one another as the other. So just when the politics gets hot, because they're in these different tribes, as Haviv describes, there are these institutions, and it's not just the army. I'm focused on the army now because as, as, uh, it's illustrative, but I can focus on others, that, that Israelis, just when things are really tense, they still really have to deal with each other. I mean, Mika Goodman, who you know, I quote extensively in the book, he once, after Trump was elected in 2016, 
he was at some academic conference in the U.S. I think it was at Harvard. And um, it was like a political science conference. And he was with a bunch of his colleagues from Harvard or from, that, from the Ivy League political science world. And they were talking about the Trump election. And they were saying, you know, I met a Trump voter. And let me tell you what he said. And they were talking about this, this species, oh, by the way, over you know, 70 million of whom voted for Trump, you know, little fact. Uh, this species is always like a lab experiment. And, and, he, and he said, wait a minute, these people have no interaction right. with this huge swath of the country. He says, I spend, I have Milouim, I spend time with my army unit, the people I served with. They're from all walks of life. I think they're crazy on politics. They think I'm crazy on politics. We couldn't agree. But we have relationships, and the army brought us together. We're in each other's lives. I will never be able to demonize them or caricaturize them uh, or view them as the other. I think that's important. And the other thing that I think is extremely important is that almost every stage of a young Israeli's life, from the scouts movement all the way through the army, I would even argue for the ultra-Orthodox in the, in the yeshivas, in the Haredi community, your success depends a lot on your ability to work with others. And that's what's rewarded. You are incentivized to work with others. In the United States, and I think the same for the UK, but especially the United States, the great sorting system is the university application and admissions process. Who gets in, right? And if you look at what it takes to get into an elite college these days, it's about you. It's about your standardized test scores. It's about your grade point average. It's about the essays you wrote. You, 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 you. Yeah. If you look at the incentive system in Israel, your ability to advance depends on your ability to work in a team, a group, and a community. You can be a phenomenal talent, and you could want to get into the best. You can get, want to get into Shmona 8200 and the IDF. You want to be an Air Force pilot. You want to get in all these units. If you can't work in a team, it doesn't matter how talented you are. You're not going to make it. And so I just think... Everything Haviv is saying is, is true that makes its politics complicated. And yet, what we talk about in the book are these societal shock absorbers that as divided and quirky and dysfunctional and lacking in democratic roots that the country um, exists on, there are these other factors that keep the place together. Can I try and wrap that up in a little pink ribbon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, do that. And then we'll talk about the two Because that was exactly, the, 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 I think, the right direction. If you understand um, Israeli society writ large as a push and pull, as the things tearing us apart, our differences, and the things holding us together, one of the most profound elements of Israeli, of the Israeli ethos, of, of Israeli shared civic religion, in as much as we have one, is the taboo of Jews killing other Jews. So there are moments of trauma in Israeli history. Israeli high schoolers learn more about the moments when Jews killed other Jews, probably than about the major wars. Why are these moments traumatic? Because of the refugee experience. Because of the sense that we're a country that is threatened. And so we are pulled together constantly. The, the Robin assassination. Uh, then 1983, Emil Greenzweig, when a right-wing protester killed a left-wing protester. These are things high schoolers know better than they know the 56 war, I promise you. And the 56 war felt existential in 1956. Um, that there are these pulling apart factors and pushing apart factors. October 7th was, and we're constantly flipping between them. Netanyahu's uh, politics that many of his opponents experience as toxic 
what those politics are, and it's true since Begin. Begin built an alliance with Mizrahi and Ashkenazi conservatives against the, the sort of socialist Ashkenazi elites. And Netanyahu doubles down on that kind of divisive politics because it helps him politically. And then the danger kicks in, and then we all, again, circle the wagons and are together. It's fundamental to our democracy, to how we function, to our institutions, to just about everything that we are. It's the, the same dynamic, that same swing that is so much of our dysfunction mm. is also our immense strength. And so it gets very complicated when you try and actually you know, cut open this Israeli society thing and try to figure out how it works. We're, we're ourselves very confused about it. Right. But that's the fundamental. The fundamental is the constant tug of war between the things pulling us apart and the things pulling us, pushing us together. Right. And I would just say what, what worries me about the West today is we only have one half of that. Right. We have the pulling apart. Right. Uh, and we don't have, if you think about what are the institutions that bring people together that even though they disagree vociferously, they still can view one another as something other than the other, as a fellow yeah. citizen, as a brother. Uh, and what are the institutions? What are the rituals? I mean, we, in the book, we really look at rituals in the United States. It's so depressing to think the, the lack of national rituals. It, you look at the Hebrew calendar that undergirds Israeli life. It's ritual after ritual after ritual that most of the country, regardless of their level of religious observance, participates in. Right, and as a result, the West doesn't have the miracles that Israel has in terms of you know, all of the stats that you previously yeah. quoted. I mean, one thing that really came across to me from your book was about the Haredim and how they are um, amongst the poorest in society. And elsewhere in the world, when you have a very poor segment of society, you have uh, drug addiction, you have high crime, you have family breakdown. You have shrinking obesity, demography. <laughs> and yet, the and the low levels of happiness. The Haredim are among the happiest in the, the world. The Haredim are the opposite in that. Yeah, they're yeah. they're law-abiding, there's no addiction, right. and all the rest of it. So it's extraordinary. There's but, some. I mean, there's also some. They, right. they also don't report as much as others report. But, right. but they report the highest levels of happiness of any Israeli right. group. Right. Yeah, there was, just, there was the New York Times did yeah. this very um, aggressive, I think, investigation of the Haredi school system in New York State. Right, yeah. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, I did. And we can, I don't want to get into a debate about the findings of the, of the article, but, but what was interesting to me is what the article did not reflect upon at all is even people in these communities in New York, with all the limitations and problems in the education system, are among the happiest and they are building big families, you know, growing yeah. big families and they're young and they're, and they are, um, you know, living on family, communal, and, and national rituals, and they are, um, and they're happy. And so, compare that to the secular public school system in the United States. It's not producing those right. results. So the message no I brought in here is become Haredi and move no. to Israel. The message to people here is know the people you care about. Be part of a community, of a collective. No, be part of people who you can fall back on, who you yeah. can depend on yeah. when, when there's community. an emergency. And if you don't, know that you are lonely and need that. That is... This is, neurolo this is neurological, folks. This is, we are human. Humans need this. And we can't live these modern lives without it. We have a, an epidemic among, among children. Right. We're growing up on Instagram and TikTok. And there's an epidemic of things you wouldn't expect. Not porn addiction. The epidemic is loneliness because their entire world is mediated through TikTok and, and Instagram. In, in that's the thing that's actually hurting us. While conservatives worry about porn and, and, and liberals worry about not limiting the... The actual problem is desperate loneliness among children. 
in, 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 yeah, sorry, I don't so mean yeah. to, we don't yeah. need to keep cutting up. See, this is what yeah. happens when you. Um, <laughs> I disagree. We mean to be cutting. No. Yeah. <laughs> in March, in March of 23, I think it was March. Yeah, a study came out from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, that um, reported on uh, teen uh, depression, teen loneliness, what Habib was referring, or alluding to. But I heard a term for the first time then that I honestly I never thought I would hear. It's that the, the United States has an epidemic, the epidemic of teen suicide, that we have staggering levels of teens taking their lives or trying to take their lives. There's, I mean, l we went and looked for any evidence of this in Israel. There's no, there's, there are, I mean, I don't want to say zero, but it's statistically insignificant. So, and, and, and then we start to look at most of the Western affluent world. We, we, are, we are more and more affluent, and we are lonelier and lonelier, and we're having fewer and fewer children, and we have less and less to do with our families, and our, now our children are taking their lives. Right. Something is broken. Right, right. Well, I just wanted just to finish off just for the last 10 minutes or so by talking a little bit about geopolitics and what's going on now in Israel and in the United States, um, because that's one of the things that people know your podcast for and what they come here for, to hear you talk about this stuff because you're so brilliant at it. Um, let's start with talking about the United States. At the moment, uh, the current state of play, there's been a lot of talk about the two-state solution, about the, 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 the plan that came out from the Qataris and the Egyptians and the Americans, which was uh, rejected by, uh, by Netanyahu. Um, first of all, Dan, what do you make of, of the American Biden administration's performance so far in the war, and where do you think it's heading from this point on? So I think that uh, the Biden administration um, deserves very high marks for how they have responded to the mass massacre, uh, specifically as it relates to the war between Israel and Hamas. So I, and the reason yeah. I, I want to put a kind of narrow band on that, I want to come back to something else. But on that particular conflict, if you would have told me that on October, on October 6th, if you had told me within 24 hours there's going to be Hamas is going to wage a war against Israel. And within days, and not, obviously not any war, this incredibly barbaric, unprecedented war, and within days, uh, not only will the President of the United States give a moving uh, public statement on the weekend of the, of the attack, but that he, the commander-in-chief of the most important military in the world, would get on Air Force One and fly to the theater, to the war theater, fly to, the, to Israel, and not just hold a press conference with the prime minister of the country, but hold meetings with the war council, like making it clear which side he's on, uh, and, um, and meeting with victims and hostage families, and also giving a moving speech from there. And then the substance comes, right, which is deploying extraordinary military assets to the region, um, moving to try to get, still chugging along, trying to get a massive 14-plus billion dollar uh, assistance package uh, to Israel, but even as that gets bogged down in congressional politics, he's still doing these workarounds to get these munitions sent to Israel, and he's he's his what the White House is wiring things to to move move munitions there. And if you look at the statements from uh, uh, John Kirby, who's the National Security Council spokesman for the White House, if you look at some of the statements from Matt Miller, who's the spokesman for the State Department, if, if you even look at some of the statements from uh, Blinken and Sullivan. I mean, they basically say all very positive things on balance, meaning, meaning you, want, you want the war to end? You want a ceasefire? Hamas 
should turn itself over to the Israelis, release all the hostages, and stop fighting. That, and, that, and, that, and that there was a ceasefire on October 6th. I mean, they say all the things we'd want I them to say. I just want to interrupt you just for a moment, because the one statement that stood out from all of the American statements so far was uh, President Biden saying that Israel was doing its indiscriminate bombing. Yeah. That, and that really stood out as being different to the narrative. So, so I, I cannot say that Biden from time to time doesn't slip off script. Right. Okay. Right. And that's just a, that right. is a, that is a, I would say that's a problem that's not maybe, unique to Israel. Maybe even Biden yeah. didn't know what he meant right. by it. So, <laughs> but I would just say if, if you look at the policy of the administration, they make it clear whose side they're on. I mean, just big picture, there's huge pressure on Biden from the progressive wing of his party. And he has basically blown them off, worse than blown them off from their perspective. He's, he, they're like an, an irritant to them. And the more they agitate, the more he kind of, you know, he, he kind of pushes back. Um, so, I, you know, and here we are over 100 days in. Now, I, it's not to say there aren't tensions between Netanyahu and Biden. Of course there are. It's not to say that the, the, Israel isn't doing certain things that, we, that the United States government wishes they wouldn't. Of course. The point is, by and large, these issues are hashed out behind closed doors, the way friends disagree. The, my, I mean, I'm grading Biden on a curve, so maybe that's my, my mistake, but I'm comparing him to, I sometimes, you know, I, I kind of think, oh my gosh, could you imagine if Obama were president during this, right? Who had, a, who had this ideological worldview that made him so skeptical of everything Israel did. And I can't imagine what B Obama would be saying, not just privately, but publicly during this moment. Biden, by and large, there are frustrations. Friends disagree. They get frustrated with each other. They're doing it behind closed doors. We're over 100 days into this. I mean, the second Lebanon war, Israel had, what, 32 days? Yeah. Um, you know, you look at 2014, uh, which was a, a serious war uh, when Obama was president. I don't know how many days, 40 days? So, like yeah, we're over 100 days into it. And, and from this point on, do you see it continuing in this way, or do you see that it's beginning to... So, so, so now, I, I, two points. Everything I said does not apply to um, how I evaluate the administration's approach to Iran, which right. I feel is... is um, not an A. Not an A. It's worse than like having a bad policy. It's like no policy. There's like no policy. I, I honestly don't understand their strategy with Iran, other than they just want to keep a lid on things and they, and they want to keep temperatures lower throughout 2024 because they don't want, you know, a, a, a big regional war. The reality is, in the Obama years, there was a strategic shift in foreign policy as it relates to Iran, and that there was this view in the Obama White House that they can kind of bring Iran into the into the community of nations and get it to behave like a responsible actor, and um, and that was, I would say that was the single most important foreign policy priority of the Obama administration, and it was a total failure, and many of the and we know that it was a total failure. Now we have plenty of data points, not just what's happening with the Houthis and the Reds. I mean, there's just plenty of data points. The many of the people who staffed President Obama are populating this foreign policy team. There has not been, I don't believe, a reckoning inside their world to like, deal with what it means that this policy with Iran that, that became the anchor for everything we were doing, particularly in the second Obama term, and, that was, and, and, and Biden was committed to continuing that, and it's been a total failure. And so I, that, that's where my criticism is. Of what happens going forward, I, I think the administration wants 
Israel, and Haviv can speak to this, Israel to be heading more in the direction that Israel's heading uh, as it relates to more of a counterinsurgency strategy, more targeted operations rather than big heavy footprint like it's had for, for the, basically the first three months of the war. It's not clear to me that, that that's much different than what most of the Israeli military leadership wants too. So why don't you, Haviv, talk about what Israel wants in these next couple months? Yeah, I mean, in Israel, there's a tension, isn't there, between um, the hostages movement and the right to a more keen to prosecute the war with full kinetic energy, isn't there? I honestly don't know if there's a tension. Um, we heard that Hamas, the Qataris explained over the last week that Hamas isn't talking because there's an uptick in the gun, the, the shootings and the, the um, actual kinetic battle on the ground in Khan Yunis. And uh, over the last 24 hours, the Israeli forces penetrated much farther into Khan Yunis and then surrounded the areas of Khan Yunis where we believe the Hamas leadership is placed. And suddenly there was a breakthrough, <laughs> according to the Qataris, that it looks like Hamas is willing in the next couple of days to give a response to some kind of potential Israeli offer. Which is exactly Gallant, it's, it's argument. As, uh, whenever they're against the wall, they'll give us a hostage. So let's get them against the wall as much as possible. So I don't know that there actually is a, um, uh, we're not gonna get them all out. That's just not what Hamas is. And so that's not an option available to us. M my confusion about the American administration, though, is I think shared by Israelis, we sometimes see from the Biden administration extraordinary levels of competence. Uh, the very fact that uh, if Obama had been president and had gone by the playbook that we saw back in the day, let's say in his 2009 journey to the Middle East where he accidentally skipped Israel, right? Um, and, and let the Israelis feel like he's picked a side, right? For no, for no reason. He didn't get a benefit from that. He didn't. It just cost and no no benefit, but um, he also, the administration said that that's what he was doing, which is also not a good way to do it. Um, but uh, we, this administration, the Biden administration, probably because of Joe Biden himself, understood that they did not have a lot of options. And so they went with the options that they had, and this is something we've talked about. They could not have stopped Israel from going after Hamas after October 7th. So the question is how Israel goes after Hamas. And if America is with Israel, it's it goes one way. America has influence. And if America is not with Israel, if it's standing on the sidelines across the ocean, you know, um, um, tesk tesking Israel. Is that a word? That's a word. I've seen that written. I think it's um, no, but it's a... No, that's the British version. That's the British version. That is yeah, a very yeah, British yeah, noise, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It was an Americanism. Um, <laughs> um, then the Israelis will ignore it. They'll have no influence and it won't mean anything. There is already an Israeli discomfort with the amount that we, the, the extent to which we need um, American uh, armaments. And so there's now a process underway in some Israeli arms manufacturers like Afael to begin building out capacity. It's a process that's probably gonna take two years and more, um, but then we'll be much more independent. But the long, the long and short of it is I think that just President Biden understood that if he wants to not just limit the war, but keep the war contained, keep the war focused on Hamas. He has to be with the Israelis at the war table. And so he did that. That's an extraordinary level of competence. American foreign policy, there's the old Kissinger line about our foreign policy, that it's all domestic policy. Well, guess what? The only thing we know about Obama's foreign policy, the only thing the Obama administration knew about its own foreign policy on day one was that it wasn't, it wasn't Bush. And the only thing the Trump administration knew about its foreign policy was that whatever Obama did was definitely wrong. 
And so there was a lot of domestic... And the same with Biden, actually, trying to return, particularly with Iran, so with, trying to return to the Biden, Obama era. Towards, well, it was, uh, it was Iran. On, Iran. on Iran. It wasn't and then, Iran, but, but then on Israel and Hamas, subtly, it wasn't. With yeah. Iran, it was more subtle. I suspect, okay, that this, this incredible competence that we see sometimes, and then it evaporates on Iran. For example, there was, today I read, I think it was a New York Times uh, article, uh, quoting Blinken, saying a sentence that the Americans love to say. Please explain to me why the Americans love to say this sentence. Iran has to choose the future that it wants. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Iran is some kind of shallow, silly schoolchild, and you're the teacher, you're the great American Secretary of State, and you know that this is the good way to go, but these little children, they're children, they don't know, so they have to choose. You know how children grow up? Choices. That's the theme, and I've seen. And uh, Kerry said that about Israel. Obama said that about every other speech. What is that? Iran has a choice. It has a vision. It's deep. It's big. It's vast. It is redemptive. They've chosen. <laughs> now, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, right. They have to choose to. They've shattered four countries. They're about to shatter more. What? They have to choose to. So I don't. There's this profound competence. When it comes to Israel, Biden looked at Israel, he said, I have two options, a war I don't have any control over and a war I have some control over. And he picked the right choice. And right. he understood how to pick that choice. Right, right. And then on Iran, and I think it is because, A, there wasn't a reckoning, and B, it's become a kind of sunk cost problem where they're just so invested in it. That and it's a little bit of a religion among some of them. The, 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 so the, now they suddenly yeah. the competence evaporated. Right. What is that? Well, let's, um, let's call that discussion to a pause right now and um, go to you guys, because I know you want to ask some questions as well. More about the origins of Israeli democracy, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> or it's about Iran that. or anything else. Have we got some roving mics? I can't see some roving mics. There's a mic. Is there a mic up there? Um, we have some hands up. Can we, we turn on the lights? Is that okay? No, 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 no. no, no. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Do we have people with mics? I'm we the do. only person who's not tall and thin oh. and has the same color right, pants and okay, jackets. So there's a mic here and a mic here. Okay, this light so on me is right, not Hands up. Who wants to ask the first question? Adam, you're there with the mic. Okay, who's nearest to Adam with the, over there? Yeah. So we'll start there. We'll come down Adam. gradually. So make them nice. Thank you short very much questions for with Short questions yeah. without a speech. Uh, Just the question and we'll give yeah, short answers so and we'll get through a lot. I'm an Israeli. In Israeli, I see that along the years, most of my friends, we come from all sorts of background. And different tribes do come together in some sort. I mean, my parents came from the Middle East, from Eastern Europe, from all over Northern Africa. How do you see the future of this tribalism going on? Do you see some sort of intermingling, or you see it separating apart? I'm just interested to know. I'll tell you a dark secret. Promise not to tell anyone else in the room. In some really fundamental ways, in the assumptions we have about the structures of identity, about how identity works, what identity is, we're Arab. We're deeply Middle Eastern, including the Ashkenazim. And so the tribes themselves intermingle. I have a good friend whose last name is Deutsch, and she's left-wing and lives in Tel Aviv and has two kids. You don't get more Ashkenazi than left-wing Deutsch, lives in Tel Aviv with two kids. Husband's a pilot. But she's Moroccan. Her mom's Moroccan, and on mom's birthday, all the daughters take mom to the Kotel. Why Moroccan? We're all mixing. And as we mix, we find other ways to be tribal. And so we're going to stick to our tribes. What the heck is Shas and UTJ? Why are there two different Haredi parties with identical platforms? 
because Sephardi and Ashkenazi, and you can't, you can't, nobody even imagines that they would ever sit together. So we find tribes. Uh, as Israelis are intermarrying across these old tribes, they're just finding new tribes. And the tribalism instinct itself, how, you know, half the Jews come from the Middle East. All the Arabs of Israel come from the Middle East. Most Israelis are from the Middle East, and we think in very tribal ways. It's not going anywhere, even if the tribes themselves are redefined. All right, thank you. Okay, someone from this side. Yep. Just continuing that thought of the tribes coming together, I also live in Israel a lot of the year, and what I found after, and I was there in September all the way through to last week, what I found really uh, difficult to deal with was the Jewish Israeli dealing with the Arab Israeli. And they didn't come together. In my experience of volunteering on various kibbutzim, on various fruit farms, they weren't together. Okay. Wait, post-October yeah, 7th? Okay, well, do you want to talk about that, Dan? I mean, that's, that's yeah, unusual. That's, uh, surprising I, to hear that. I am surprised to hear that. Um, what we have seen, what I've seen, and I'm curious what Haviv has seen, is the number of Israeli Arab leaders who have spoken out, locking arms, expressing solidarity with their fellow Israeli Jewish citizens. Uh, this Lucy Arash, who's uh, uh, an Israeli Arab news anchor in Israel, you may know, gave this very powerful statement in English, Hebrew, and Arabic after October 7th on national television saying that she does not stand with Hamas, she stands with her Israeli Jewish fellow citizens. Uh, Mansour Abbas, who we spent a lot of time with and working on our book, uh, he said some pretty extraordinary things well before October 7th, but after October 7th, he you know, made statements like Lucy Arash's and also a member of his own party made some statement I can't, sort of minimizing the, the legitimacy of the stories about Israeli children being killed on October 7th, and he, he moved on her immediately, tried to get her removed from his party, removed from the Knesset. Uh, in Jaffa, there was uh, within days of October 7th, so you remember during the, the, in May of 21, during the Gaza-Israel war, there was these flare-ups where in mixed Arab-Jewish towns, you had violence between Arabs and Jews, Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews, and this, this volunteer civilian security committee was formed, grassroots, not from the top, grassroots formed of Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs in Jaffa said, okay, things are about to get really bad. You know, obviously this is post-October 7th. Let's make sure May 21 doesn't happen again. Let's form a committee populated by Arabs and Jews. And they have, within 24 hours, they had a Zoom meeting and something like, like, Thousands of people had shown up on the Zoom meeting, Arabs and Jews from this town, and they all agreed if any of their, either of their communities are the victims of violence, they all come together to tamp it down. I go on and on and on with these examples. Obviously, Haviv has... And the polls bear it out as well. The, the yeah. uh, Israel Democracy Institute has a poll that shows that Israeli Arabs have never felt a higher level of sense of solidarity with the country in recent times, and in fact, on the nation-state law, which was passed in what? 2018. Which was very controversial, and was very, it, it, was, it was very offensive to many Israeli Arabs. For the first time, you saw serious numbers of Israeli Jews saying we should reconsider the, the nation-state law because they recognized that it was antagonistic of the Israeli Arab population, and they were so moved by how the Israeli Arab population had been stepping up. Now, I don't want to sound Pollyannish. Life is unpredictable. Life is doubly, triply unpredictable in Israel. Things can change. Uh, tensions can flare. But my gosh, if you would have told me after October 7th that this is what we'd be seeing from the Israeli Arab community, especially after what we saw in May of 21, I wouldn't have believed it. 
There's, I want to just, one thing to add to that. There's yeah. a, uh, it's absolutely true, uh, but, the, but the tension is profound. There is an Israeli-Arab fear of what the Jews will do after October 7, because of October 7, as they unite, and fear of their own position. And we pull that fear. There is a desire to be Israeli that is at record numbers. There is also um, a, a majority of IDI, one of the things that they polled was Mansour Abbas's statement, October 7 does not represent our culture, it does not represent Palestinians, it does not represent Islam. Most Arab, by the way, most Jews disagree with him. They think that is actually something profound in the culture on the other side. Most Israeli Arabs disagree. And so there's a distancing from that. But there's also a tension with the Jews. Jews were very, very nervous about this war that's suddenly beginning, October 7th suddenly beginning. Our last experience in May 2021 was massive pro-Hamas violence instigated by pro-Hamas uh, imams in places like Jaffa and Lod. It, it wasn't the entirety of Arab-Israeli society, it was a minority. It was a minority that ac actively supports Hamas in the polls. And so we are sitting watching ourselves to see, uh, watching each other to see if the violence is ahead of us but also telling every pollster who's asking that we're closer than ever. So those are th it's, a co it's a complicated story. Wow, fascinating. Okay, somebody a bit further down on this side. Adam? Someone there? Right. Um, there's a, th th there was a thought that the timing of the Hamas attack was linked to the Saudi, or the, the, the potential of a Saudi normalization deal with Israel. To what extent do you think that's true, and to what extent do you think that process will pick up at some point in the future, and I guess at what cost to Israel? I have no idea how long the October 7 attack was in the works. I've heard varying estimates. We will know at some point. I, 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 some people feel they know with certainty. I don't, I'm skeptical of all the certainty. Uh, we'll learn a lot over the next few years. Um, but it, on the one hand, it's hard for me to believe that uh, if this was in the works for some time, it was probably well before Saudi normalization was picking up steam. And a, and a, and a date was probably selected or an approximate date to do this long before this. Because when I say the Saudi normalization was picking up steam, it was really just picking up steam in the last year. I mean, you remember in September of 23 was during the UN General Assembly where Mohammed bin Salman and Benjamin Netanyahu both made very forward-leaning statements uh, about Saudi normalization. MBS did the interview with Brett Baer of Fox News where people were shocked what he said. Then Netanyahu came and said something equally. And it was like, whoa, this is moving fast, faster than anyone thought. The idea that Hamas at that point said, oh, we got to get into high gear, this thing's about to happen, we got to blow it up, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. That said, if you just look at the broader trends, the broader trends, I mean, you, you'd have to be blind to, to miss them. The broader trends were that Israel, what, as Israel became stronger and stronger, stronger economically, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, regional economic superpower. It is a global technology superpower. And up until October 7th, we'll see what the lessons of October 7th and how Israel bounces back, but at least up until October 7th, there was a sense that Israel was a military and intelligence juggernaut. As Israel is growing stronger and, and a cybersecurity juggernaut, as Israel was growing in every one of those spheres, they were only becoming more and more integrated into the Middle East. This idea that Israel had to pull back, had to restrain itself, had to be you know, softer, weaker in order to be accepted 
into a into a um, uh, the modern Middle East, which was you know which was Shimon Peres's vision in the mid '90s that how Israel is going to be the, his vision for the modern Middle East. The exact opposite was true. There was a correlation between Israel becoming stronger and more of a powerhouse geopolitically, militarily, and economically, and not reaching a resolution, ironically, with the Palestinians, and becoming more integrated into the Middle East. Obviously, the Abraham Accords countries were the test case of that. It was clear the Saudis were not too far behind. Far behind. And I do think there was a sense in certain corners of the Middle East, especially with Hamas, that the train was leaving the station for them, and they had to break it. They had to break this, this momentum. And so whether it was specifically, oh, Saudi's about to happen, you know, I, who knows? But I do think just generally, like I said, they would have had been blind to not see what was going on. Is, the trends were Israel's becoming more integrated, and they, this was like a, a last-ditch effort to, to try and break it. Don't add to that, Khalifa. Yeah, exactly. I agree with every word that Dan said, but also it is a war within Islam for the, the, the future and character of Islam. And the train is leaving the station. I mean, pe people, Hamas and all of its allies, both in the radical Sunni camp and in the Shia camp, feel that everyone who isn't them, they're sitting there destroying countries in the name of the great holy war, and everyone else is just kind of prospering and building out their economies into much more modern economies not dependent on oil. That's the big Saudi initiative now. And so the train is leaving the station. If they are going to shape the Middle East with their war, they're going to have to do something to disrupt that. And, and so I do think it was, at a, at a macro level, against normalization, not specifically, but against everything it represents. And I don't think they planned it specifically for that agreement. Okay, very good. I think we have time for one, maybe two Whoa. more questions. <laughs> good luck picking. The mic has been, I'm yeah. sorry, it's been commandeered up there. How, how do you explain the complete failure of Israeli intelligence in anticipating the Hamas attack? Yeah, Haviv. Yeah, Haviv. <laughs> in, a, in a single sentence, please. My bad, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, was, um, it was a fascinating failure. Um, that fence is the smartest fence anyone ever built. There are doctrines that have been building out for a decade and a half in the military high command, in the Shabak, in the Mossad. Everyone all agreed that certain things were just unassailable truths. They are deterred. <laughs> we will sense them coming from every direction, including underground. And because the fence is so smart, and because we're so smart, and because we have figured out the enemy's innermost psyche, you just don't need anything as crass and crude as a bunch of infantry battalions on the border. And I say that in a way that sounds mocking. I, I, me personally, didn't think that wasn't a safe border. Nobody thought it wasn't a safe border. And, and Hamas was following us and saying, wow, these Israelis felt so deeply in love with their strengths, with their tech, with their astonishing ability to develop seismic sensors the world has never before seen, or whatever the heck's built into that fence. That's one of the things built into that fence. Um, but there's not anybody on the other side to actually stop us if we blow the whole thing up in 20 minutes with satellite maps given to us by Iran. Hamas, in a sense, is, um, is a unique enemy for two reasons. Uh, it's a unique enemy because it combines, as we talked about on the podcast repeatedly, apologies, um, it's a hybrid of a guerrilla force and a government. 
And so it has these two capabilities that can wreak destruction on Gaza and can build under Gaza in ways no guerrilla force ever has in the past. And that shapes the war now, and it shapes the destruction we've seen in Gaza. But it's also, um, in that sense, unique because it's a guerrilla force with an empire behind it, with an empire actively on the march behind it. The, the Nukba force that crossed that border, that wasn't Hamas. It was Hamas, but it wasn't an indigenous capacity of Hamas. That was Iran. Iran literally trained these people. Iran gave them their satellite images. Iran helped them track for 10 years the installation of the various parts of the fence and intelligence apparatus. Uh, and Iranian planners, uh, professional strategic planners sitting in Tehran, figured out the one thing the Israelis weren't seeing. I just want to say one last sentence. It's okay. It's okay that we had a lacuna and the enemy saw it. That is what enemies are. And that is what lacunas, lacunae are. You, have, you can never map out everything the enemy will ever see. The enemy will surprise you. The sad thing is that that enemy is, is attempting to destroy us while actively destroying their own side. That's the sad part, that once in a while they'll surprise you and it'll be painful. That's just what enemies are. So uh, we, we don't need to live in that... By the way, we're going we're gonna to haul these people over the coals, every last one of them, all the way to the top, even if he doesn't think so. <laughs> but we don't have to live in that moment. That, is, that happens, and it's happened to us, and it'll happen to us again in 30 years. Well, maybe, uh, Dan, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Could you just give us a note of optimism to, uh, to, to, to buoy people But up? it's going to be okay. No. <laughs> uh, look, we've talked about um, the resilience of Israeli society, uh, which, as we talked about at the beginning, I'm as, I'm as um, bullish on as, as I ever was, even though there are, there's political dysfunction. Um, United States, uh, one analyst uh, we quote says, the United States has strong institutions but a weak society. Israel has weak institutions but a strong society. And I, and I think that is true. And I think that'll carry Israel through um, the foreseeable future. The big question to me after October 7th was what this question was about, which is what happens to Israel's integration into the modern Middle East? What happens with Saudi normalization? What happens to the Abraham Accords? And um, I said at the time, and I believe still today, that if Israel responds strongly and effectively and decisively, all of that will be okay. Again, the modern Middle East, quote unquote, was betting on Israeli strength, not betting on Israeli weakness. They were drawn to Israeli strength, not to Israeli weakness. If anything, they may have had pods based on how badly hit Israel was on October 7th. Maybe Israel isn't as strong. If some modicum or some remnant of Hamas is still intact and still standing after the war, then Israel really looks like a fraction of itself. Maybe Israel looks like the paper tiger. I said it's the contrast with the 73 Yom Kippur War, which w even though Israel was surprised on the, during the Yom Kippur War, Israel ultimately exposed the Egyptian and Syrian armies to be paper tigers. Israel was basically surrounding Cairo and Damascus and, and could have taken both cities, didn't, but exposed, even though, that's the war, by the way, that's studied in American military academies, not the Six-Day War, it's the Yom Kippur War, because it's the bounce back, and Israel exposing these big conventional armies as not being all that. And the fear of October 7th for me is that Israel was the paper tiger now. And Israel was exposed. And I was worried that those countries in the region were looking at Israel saying, we didn't think Israel was all that. And I think Israel's, 
the strength of its response, hopefully the continuing strength of its response, and the decisiveness of its response will reassure those countries. I've spoken recently to uh, officials, leaders uh, in the Sunni Gulf, and they are as committed, those that aren't part of the Abraham Accords, they are as committed to normalizing with Israel as they have ever been. Uh, I asked one of them the question, is that because you, you see that as a, uh, you see normalization with Israel as a way to lure Israel into the creation of a Palestinian state, and right now that's your priority? Or is it because you were always for normalizing with Israel for other reasons, because you wanted to strategically cooperate with Israel, because you wanted access to startup nation, because you wanted access to Israel's economic juggernaut? Is it, those were the reasons before October 7th, is it, is it that reason? And they say the former. It's not just, we, we're not just looking to bring the temperature down on the Palestinian issue, and we feel that normalizing with Israel is a way to lure them in to, to doing a deal with the Palestinians, some quote-unquote two-state solution, which I think in the near term is completely unrealistic. They said, no, it's the former. We want to get back to where we were. The Abraham Accords countries, the Abraham Accords are intact, right? You would have thought the Emiratis and the Bahrainis would have pulled their ambassador. It hasn't happened. Now, do I like every statement that these governments made after October 7th? Absolutely not. In fact, some of it was quite disorienting, some of the statements that were made. But this diplomatic and economic integration is still intact. And I think, and so Israel is hitting Hamas hard. Like I said, I hope they continue to hit Hamas hard, and I hope they, they are decisive in, its, in their outcome. And if they do, I'm as, as confident, if not more confident, that Israel will fully integrate into the region as I was before October 7th. Well, thank you, Dan. And that has brought our time, unfortunately, to a close. So thank you for coming. So just, just a, can, you say can you say something? Can he say something? Yes. Very quickly. Go on. Go on. Guys, I'm... Uh, I'm feeling the anxiety in some of these questions. I want to say something. I apologize. It'll be a little, little pathos. But you know that we're the heirs of all of Jewish history, right? So we're therefore the luckiest Jews who've ever lived, right? We're going to be okay. I mean, this period that looms before us, you have a little bit of a problem here in England. I, I'm taking, I understand from Jake here that uh, there's a little bit of a few marches in the streets occasionally. You're, you're going pogroms. They call it pogroms. <laughs> you are, we, we do not have the right. We do not have the right. Looking at our story and our history, learn your history, know your history, be aware of your history, because then you will understand that you don't have the right to despair from our situation now. We have more agency than our ancestors have had for two millennium, and that's not just the Israelis, that's you as well. And so we're going to be okay. This is a little bit of a difficult period. And it's going to appear that's forcing us to unite and forcing us to act and forcing us to fix the things that have been breaking around us that we haven't noticed. And that's not a bad thing. So, so thank you all for coming. Thank you to JW3 for hosting. Thank you to the JC team, many of whom are here for putting this on. Uh, you will receive a free copy of Dan's book, and he'll be signing books right here. And lastly, if any, anybody here who has not yet subscribed to the JC, I'm sure there aren't any. Raise your hand if you haven't. But if there are, go home and do it immediately. Thank you all very much, and thank you, Dan. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. 
Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.